And all of that kind of thrown into one big Christmas pot ends up giving us heartburn and headache. It just stresses us out. I recently ran across a list of horrible Christmas gifts. I've been asking people all week, what was the worst Christmas gift you ever got? I've got some doozies we'll probably use later for other sermon fodder. I don't want to get some husbands or wives in trouble, but I've had fun with this. But I found a list, and I was reading through this list. And if you think about it, family can, can kind of push your buttons you know, pretty quick, probably quicker than anybody else. Listen to a few of these. This was one girl's description. She said, my mom is notorious for bad presents. And she wrote these words. She said, one that stands out is a car crash kit. I didn't even know that existed. But listen to the description. She said it had a disposable camera for recording the scene, a form of, uh, for both parties to fill out, a tape measure for measuring stuff. She said, I guess and even some chalk for what I assume was marking out where the dead bodies landed or something like that. Thanks, Mom. Mary, Mary. How about this one? A lady said, my sister got me a diet book, and we're still barely speaking. What about this one? My grandfather was planning on giving me a tissue box with money in it and said, I'm still not sure why, but he wrapped the wrong box. And so on Christmas morning, I opened up a box of Kleenex. That'll bless you. How about this one? When I was eight or nine, my grandma gave me a Christmas ornament. It was a little stuffed cherub with pink cheeks and yarn hair. That sounds sweet enough, but listen to the rest. I cried because I saved up my allowance to buy it for her the year before. <laughs> oh, yeah, a little too close to home on some of that regifting. Y'all better be careful. How about this one? My aunt bought me an ornament with the name Eric on it. My name is Morgan. <laughs> and then finally, this one, and all husbands have done something along these lines, but very simply, my husband bought me a chainsaw. <laughs> Well, no doubt all of those things can steal your peace. They can rob you of peace. But I want us today to talk about genuine biblical peace that's deeper than just feelings. It's deeper than just those things that are affected by the outside, but truly what goes on in our lives. And so I invite you here to Isaiah chapter 9, and I want you to think about this. This is a prophecy of Messiah. This is a prophecy of Jesus that would come. This is one of the greatest Advent passages in all of Scripture. And I want to invite you, if you wouldn't mind, to stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. We've already heard them in our, our reading and in our uh, service today as we lit the Advent candles. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. This is in our hearing the word of God. You may be seated. As I read those ancient words, I've just got to tell you, we as Christians are not 
wringing our hands and worrying and saying, what is this world coming to? No, in fact, what we are doing is looking to Jesus and rejoicing and saying, guess who's already come to this world? As we consider the fulfillment of this prophecy, we see Messiah from his very birth. Oh, seven, some 700 years before Christ would enter the world stage, we see a birth announcement. Now, think about that. In our day, that's become a big deal. People hit golf balls and they shoot basket hoops and they, they do all manner of things to release a blue or a pink color and they do birth announcements and share with the world a gender reveal and they want everybody to know this is a great time of celebration. Well, that's exactly what we have here, but the context of this announcement of a birth is darkness. In fact, there in your notes, I put words like gloom and darkness and despair. That's pretty depressing. You wouldn't think that in the midst of a time like that, we would have such a glorious announcement, but that's the truth. The announcement's dark in the context. If you were to look back at verses 1 and 2, and I want to challenge you to do that a little later this week, it, it literally paints a picture of people that are in a place of grim sorrow. They're walking in darkness. In fact, it says the people who walk in darkness. So that's the people to whom he is sharing this announcement. These verses are taking a sober, real look about suffering in our world. But what I want you to see today with me is three very simple, beautiful insights into Christmas peace. Number one, and you may want to jot these down, I want you to write down God's method for bringing us peace. God's method for bringing us peace, it's Jesus. Scripture says this there in Isaiah 9 in the earlier parts, but the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That is what makes the difference. Seeing his light, it makes all the difference, seeing him. You need to hear this. Jesus does not ask or expect us to settle into a slightly Christianized version of darkness. No, he calls us to walk in light. He doesn't call you just to try to fumble around in the darkness with a little bit of Christianity sprinkled on top of it. He says, I'm the light of the world. And he says, the people who walk in darkness have now seen a great light. Look to him. He is bringing the light forever. And, and I think it's interesting when you look at these verses, these verses don't tell us what to do. These verses don't give us indication or instruction on how to obey God in a certain way. They don't give us five simple steps to a more peaceful holiday. You might see that in a magazine somewhere, but the announcement of Jesus' birth said, the people that are walking in darkness, they've seen the light. They have seen the great light. Some might try to find simple strategies to find your balance and inner peace, but this is not that. You're not walking through things that you need to do. No, God's method for bringing us peace is Jesus and Jesus alone. Let me just tell you this way. This passage of Scripture is pure gospel. It is pure good news. Whatever your circumstance, whatever your difficulty, whatever your stressors that you're in the midst of right now, Jesus is the answer. Those that walked in darkness have seen a great light and a child is born, a son is given, and we're going to discover who he is in a moment. But as we look at this, we'll see that this passage, this 
birth announcement is literally the heartbeat of God. And in fact, it's not only the heart of God, it shows us the lengths that he will go to make sure that it happens. Look back at the end of verse 7 with me. It says, the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Don't lose this. Don't run past it. The zeal of the Lord, you may know it better in the, the King James, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. God is the captain of all of the angelic hosts that are in formation. Can you imagine this military picture of these fighting angels, a garrison of angels that are gathered all around heaven and God alone commands them with his word and he tells them what to do. We know that at Christ's uh, crucifixion that there was a very clear picture. He could have called down 10,000 angels to rem remedy that issue, but that would have destroyed our hope for salvation. The Lord of hosts, the God of heaven's armies with his passionate commitment will make it so this would not come to be for 700 years but they could take it to the bank and as we look back at it we see the power of Jehovah Shalom the God of peace who said with great announcement there's one coming who will bring light to your darkness he'll bring peace to your chaos he will bring hope in the midst of your pain Oh, this birth announcement is so radically different from everything we see in the news and read and hear in the world today. Here is a leader worth believing in. Amen. Here is a leader who won't betray our trust. Amen. Here is a leader who isn't worried that the truth about him may get out. In fact, everything that we know about Jesus, the more we learn, the better it gets the more exciting. Here is a leader, Jesus, that will come and he literally deserves to be our king forever. There's so much we know about Jesus from various parts of the Bible. We know about his teachings. We know about his death and his burial and his resurrection. We know about his second coming that is promised, but this passage is all about the person, Jesus, who he is and who he always and forever will be. And I love this. In a world of uncertainty, here's the one bedrock certainty that you can count on. The Lord of hosts will do this. God will make it happen. We'll make what happen? For unto us, a child is born. For unto us, a son is given. Don't run past that either. He came for you. He came for you. He came for you and you and you and you and you. He came for us. And in coming for us, God's method for bringing peace to the world is that he sent himself. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. Wholeness came. The Old Testament word for peace is the word shalom. It, it was literally completeness, that you lacked nothing, that all in your life was put together and well. In the New Testament, as we look at the Greek word, irene, and think about this word, I, I don't try to use an original language too much, but other than just to get you to see the depth of it. In the New Testament, the picture is two parties that were at odds that have come together. It's like a peace treaty or a peace agreement. They, they can only have peace when they come to the middle. And Jesus Christ left heaven and came to earth so that you and I could be reconciled and made right with God. And we could have shalom. We could have arene. We could have peace. I love this. 
I want you to think about it. His method was to send himself, but look at who you stand to gain. Gaze upon Jesus Christ with me for a moment. Number two, look at the magnitude of Jesus. Look at the magnitude of Jesus. And he will be called what? Wonderful, counselor, mighty God. In fact, read this with me. It's uh, the passage we've been reading, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Read it with me. And he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. Just walk through these for a moment. He is wonderful. He really is wonderful, isn't he? It doesn't just mean that he's impressive. No, this actually means he's supernatural. He's filled with wonder. He is miraculous and able to do the miraculous. He is not just impressive. His counsel actually works. He is a wonderful counselor. Think about this with me. As the wonderful counselor, he has some shrewd strategies. He knows you. He knows you well, and not only does he know you, he understands you. Somebody walked into this place today and needs to hear this. The Lord understands how to make a tailor-made conversion experience just for you, a perfect fit for your need. If you've come to the Lord, you recognize his hand was at work before you trusted him. Would you agree with that? I look back over my life and it's a wonder of wonders that I didn't die before I came to Christ, but he providentially kept me alive. From my own stupid decisions, he protected me. And maybe that's the case for you. Maybe you came to Christ early and he knew that you needed that and you came to him and he revealed himself in such a way. And maybe you've not yet come to faith, but you need to know that God brought you here today for this specific time, this specific place, this specific purpose. Why? Because he knows you and he understands you. He is the wonderful counselor. I'm so grateful for that. And here's why, because he also understands exactly what I need. He knows how to personalize a journey of discovery and walking with him that will work for you. It's not somebody else's story. He knows how to write your story in such a way that your own sense of personal significance and and worth develops and grows in him. It moves forward. He knows how to do that because he is that. He is the wonderful Counselor, as the mighty God, somebody needs to hear this. He has defeated every enemy. That'd be a great place for an amen. We don't live like it. We live our lives as if the enemy is still coming and coming. Yes, we know that he roams around seeking whom he may devour, and he'll do that if you don't have a shepherd. But if the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. And he holds us in his hand. He said, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them from my hand. Jesus has defeated every enemy, including the worst of all of our enemies, the enemy of death, the enemy of fear. He is our victory. St. Augustine said something that I just love, and I'll, I'll paraphrase. He said, the cross of Jesus Christ is likened to a mousetrap upon which Jesus offered himself as the bait, and that rat, the devil, fell for it. And in his weakness, our Lord prevailed. And if his cross is the deepest insight into how, it actually, how life actually works, as we follow him bearing our cross, why should we ever feel intimidated? 
He, he was not at the whims of Satan on the cross. He was in complete control. The Bible says he had the power to lay down his life and the power to take it up again. And Jesus was raised from the dead victoriously, not uh, on a hopeful plan, not as a plan B or C because everything else had failed, but from the beginning, God had on his heart redemption. And so when 700 years before this baby would be born, God used Isaiah to write these words to a people who are walking in darkness. He's writing to people today that are walking in dark circumstances. Some of you are struggling, and you need to realize that he's wonderful. You need to realize that he is a wonderful counselor who knows and understands you. You need to understand that he is the mighty God who has overcome every enemy, and he is our victory. Oh, we can walk in that with power. I love this. He's not only those things, he is the everlasting father. Now, some people get confused with this. This is not a Trinitarian statement. It's not saying that he and the father are the same. No, we understand them to be two co-eternal, co-equal persons of the Godhead. Don't get hung up here. It's not saying he's the father, but rather he is fatherly. And this ought to give you some beautiful insight. What it means is Jesus takes fatherly responsibilities for us. He has invited us in as a father. He gathers us in as a family. He cares for us. He guides us. He gives us a place at his table. I'm so thankful that there was room. I I love this idea. It says that from the words of Jesus, I will not leave you as orphans. No, he is the everlasting father. And then we come to the next description. He is the prince of what? Let's try that again. He's the prince of what? He is the prince of peace. You think about this. His cross reconciles us to himself. While we were still enemies, he makes us friends. He calls us friends. Jesus is is saying to us in essence, you would never on your own call me friend. You would hide from me. That is the human tendency. In our sinfulness, we hide from the Lord. And he sought us out and he came after you and drew you to himself and said, you are my friends. He calls us to be friends. It is shalom. It is reconciled wholeness. We are once again made right. He gathers us in as friends and he doesn't force us. He woos us. If you've come to the Lord, it was because he loved you with an unending, everlasting love, and he's wooed you to himself. Our text goes on to say that his government and its peace will never end. Literally, you know this probably again from the King James and and more familiar translations, of the increase of his government and its peace, there will be no end. We will never again, listen to this, church family, we will never ever again shout four more years. That would be a good place for a hallelujah. His government will never end, and its peace will never end. It will continue to increase. It will continue in beautiful, beautiful, manifest ways, demonstrate his love, his leadership, his benevolence toward us, his grace, and his mercy. We will never again cry out, oh, we hope we get someone else. Oh, we need a leader. No, we have a leader, and his government and its peace will never end. Colin Smith said these words, the empire of his grace will forever grow forever succeed, forever expand. And if we welcome his rule now, we will be standing when all partisan politics crumble. Praise God. 
His kingdom will be forever ascending, accelerating, and growing. Now, what do we do with such news? I told you at the beginning, he doesn't give us three simple steps to finding peace. He is peace. And we've discovered and, de and described in just small ways who he is and the one that gives us this peace. But what do we do with this birth announcement? I mean, it is pure joy. It is pure gospel. But what does it mean, pastor, for me? What does it mean for me today? What is Christmas peace? It's not just a good feeling, I recognize. It's not just getting the food right and the presents right and getting through all of the holidays. Pastor, help. Well, I'm so glad you've asked because the Bible gives to us a very clear picture. And I want to call this, if, you'll write, if you're taking notes, the measure of his peace. The measure of his peace. Where do we see peace manifested in our lives? How does it play out in our lives? Well, move forward with me very, very quickly to Luke chapter 2. Flip over from Isaiah to Luke. Luke chapter 2, we see the familiar Christmas refrain. This was read earlier for us as well. Luke 2, 13 and 14. I'll put it on the screen. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others. By the way... Same word as we saw before, the Lord of heaven's hosts. So God has sent these angels, and all of them begin to sing the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased or to those on whom his favor rests. Now, there's some nuance here we need to get because if you're honest with yourself, you say this angelic announcement is supposed to be a prediction of a connection between the birth of Jesus and peace on earth. Obviously, it ain't happened yet. You're very right. The earth is not at peace. Our world around us is not. You can throw a dart in a map or a globe and more than likely you'll hit a spot of conflict. They say that in the last 3,000 years, the earth has literally been without war for only about 300. I said this on Wednesday night, that in the life of the United States, it's estimated that the U.S. has been at war 93% of its existence, some 228 out of our 245 years. We've had a war or a conflict going on. We live in a time where daily the occurrence on the news report is a robbery or an abduction or a murder or some other tragedy. The world, and more specifically our country, does not know peace right now. Would you agree with that? We're in a time of chaos. So if we've been thinking that there was uh, no more conflict or combat after the birth of Jesus because of this announcement, we must have heard the angels wrong. What then is Christmas peace? What is the peace that the angels spoke of, the peace that we're supposed to experience as the people of God? And that's the kind of peace I want to talk to you about for the next few minutes. Number one, I want you to just hear this. Christmas peace is Jesus. He doesn't just bring peace or speak peace or give peace. He is peace. He is the reconciling factor, and that peace brings peace with God. Write that down. Peace with God is the first measure of Christmas peace. Peace with God is the kind of peace which is evidenced from the words of the angels. What did they say? Peace among men with whom God is pleased. Those who surrender experience Jesus. Those who have a relationship with Jesus have peace. Those who don't have a relationship with Jesus cannot experience true wholeness. There's always going to be something missing. There's always going to be something off kilter. And you need to hear this. 
I, I heard that a man had gone to the hospital and he was very close to death and a, a minister came to see him and he asked him the question, have you made peace with God? And his answer was this, I didn't know we'd ever quarreled. A lot of people think that way. That's the problem. Several years ago, a man named T.A. Harris wrote a book called I'm Okay, You're Okay. And there's this idea in our world, that message has been so pushed into the psyche of all of us that somehow to suggest that somebody is not at peace with God is damaging. And people think that such a belief in that kind of an idea means that that person's not really well adjusted. There's this belief, one writer said this, a belief in an inherent and universal okayness, and it's one explanation for all the good cheer at Christmas. I mean, if you think about it, even people without Jesus Christ can be cheerful at Christmas because our culture has convinced them that miracles happen on 34th Street even without God. And we've seen in our society that the world understands that it is a wonderful life even with no mention of Jesus Christ. But according to this way of thinking, God is somehow a sort of great-grandfather type who lives in a faraway nursing home called heaven. And we just kind of tolerate this sense of religion. And it's true that we don't see him much. But on the other hand, it'd be silly to suggest that we don't like the old codger. I mean, we enjoy talking to him. We enjoy the stories of the, the Bible that he has given to us. But that's the kind of concept that we need to understand. It is so necessary. If somebody wants to believe that they've never had a quarrel with God, they need to understand that, that God is not just pleased with the sappy benevolence that we throw around at Christmas time. Just because you walk past a bell ringing in an empty kettle and you throw a little in does not bring peace. No, you are not okay with God without Christmas peace. And what is Christmas peace? Jesus. Jesus is peace. And so the angels announced that peace will rest on those in whom God has found favor. It's interesting. The kind of wishful thinking that I'm talking about really ignores both the imminence of God, the nearness of God, and the holiness of God. And if you think about this with me, God is not out there somewhere. He described himself as Emmanuel. He is here. He is with us. And because of his holiness, he is offended by our sinfulness. Men and women and boys and girls are not naturally or automatically at peace with God. To the contrary, the Bible says that we are at war with God, at enmity, at we are at odds with God. And without Christ in this war, the only way we will know peace is through the sacrifice of the one who was born that night in Bethlehem and the one who was promised that many centuries ago in the pen of Isaiah. Romans 5.10 puts it this way, while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Listen to how Paul says it in Ephesians. You were separated from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let me say that again. You who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. That's Ephesians 2, 12 to 14. You may want to jot that down. That's what the angels were talking about that night. They were saying, now peace is possible. 
You've been at odds with God because of your sinfulness. You've been separated from his wholeness. You've walked in darkness and he is light and his light is shining on the world. And if you'll run to it, if you'll receive it, he will save you gloriously, make you right with himself and you will have peace with God. What is the measure of Christmas peace? The measure of a relationship with Jesus, you'll have peace with God. And when you finally come to the place of having peace with God, it spills over into other areas. Secondly, I want you to see this. You'll have peace within yourself. Peace within yourself. Peace with God results in peace within ourselves. If we're honest, the burgeoning industry of all things therapeutic tell us that there's a problem in the world. People are in turmoil. And I'm not trying to put down on the profession of counseling. I recognize there's a need. But he is the wonderful counselor. And we need to recognize that the ultimate solution that works its way into our lives and out of our problems is Jesus Christ. If you've looked at the psychology or the self-help section of bookstores, it continues to grow in taking up space. There are a ton of people who are not at peace with themselves, even in this room. You do know that's the case, right? People are in turmoil. You can grunt or nod or something. Would you agree with that? People are in turmoil these days. They're struggling these days. They're in turmoil over past failures, in turmoil over unfulfilled expectations, in turmoil over declining relationships and financial problems and everything from career boredom to identity crisis to flabby thighs. I don't know. People are just not happy with anything in their lives. The philosopher Albert Camus said this, our age is an age of overt anxiety. He said, we just live in an age racked with anxiety. It seems like everybody's worried about something. And Christian, if you are like me, don't you every once in a while need to be reminded that Jesus Christ came to bring us peace? I do. I need to go back to that place over and over again. I go back to Isaiah 9. I go back to Luke 2 and recognize the announcement was that if I run to Jesus, I have peace. But here's the problem. We maybe don't have peace because our eyes are not on Christ, but they're actually on our problems. And that keeps you in a constant state of anxiety. Some of you need an eye exam. You need to check up with your eyes and recognize that the eye adjustment needed is about 45 degrees. You need to stop gazing at your problems and you need to put your gaze on Jesus. You need to look at him. Think about this with me. When you look at your problems, they become insurmountable. When you look at Jesus, they look more like hurdles that you just continue to climb over and over and over again on your way to him. Let me say it this way. Gaze at God and glance at your problems. Some of you are gazing at your problems and giving God an occasional nod an occasional glance. You look to him only in times of desperation. The Bible says that we need to be anxious for nothing, but in everything pray. I I don't understand it, Pastor. I, I don't know how a close fellowship with God can bring me peace in the midst of this situation. Why don't you just stop right there and thank God for it? Because he said the peace that he offers passes understanding. You don't have to understand it to experience it. You can be in the depths of grief, in the depths of despair. You can be in the midst of a land of walking in darkness. And yet the bright light of Jesus' hope and his peace can shine in and through your heart and your life. And you can experience rock solid confidence in the midst of all of that chaos and difficulty. Amen? 
And that is the desire of God for all of us is that we would experience peace. Peace with God and then peace within ourselves. Christmas peace also brings something else. Pretty powerful. Peace between people. Peace between people. Certainly the words of the angels reflects this. On earth, peace among men, men who, uh, with whom God is pleased. But I want you to see this. <laughs> it's not always the case that those who love God are at peace. I know it's shocking for you to hear. Not all Christians get along. Not all brothers and sisters act like they're living in shalom. And we need to get past it. Here's a tragic but ironic example I read just this week, just a year or so ago as we went to Bethlehem and went to the site of the church in the nativity. Um, in, in the 1850s, there was uh, from the Roman Catholic Church a silver star placed over the birthplace of Jesus. It was there at the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. It hung there for several years. Eastern Orthodox Christians wanted to replace that star with their own star. And the idea was rejected by the Catholic Church, but the Eastern Orthodox Church that was backed by Russia and uh, the Catholic Church then backed by France in that area. And at that time, Turkey had jurisdiction over Palestine. You say, Pastor, why are you going into this? Listen. In this conflict, Turkey sided with the, France, with the French, and as a result, Russia declared war on Turkey, and Great Britain and France and Italy rallied to the side of Turkey for a star in Bethlehem. Think about this. The, for three years, 19, uh, 1853 to 1856, the Crimean War was waged and raged. Two years after the war, the civil star was permanently removed from the site, and the immediate cause of the war was the maintenance of a place where it was declared, from this place there shall be peace. Mary, Mary. Jesus said that peace between his disciples was critical. So critical that if you were at odds with a brother, that you should leave your gift at the altar and go make that right before you worship God, that it impacts your worship. Maybe some of you need to ask that question. You need to say, I'm not experiencing Christmas peace simply because I'm at odds with someone else. If there are people in this room that are in that condition with, with whom God is well pleased, and I know there are, then this also should be a place where God has declared this is a place of peace. One more thought. I read a story just a few weeks ago in a biography of um, Charles Spurgeon. A man named Newman Hall was a pastor, a minister in London near Spurgeon. And uh, he had written a book called Come to Jesus. That sounds like a good book you might want to read. Newman Hall wrote this book, Come to Jesus. And the book was reviewed by a writer in the London paper. And the reviewer was absolutely vicious. I mean, the book was just unbelievably uh, torn apart. It was unjustly critical and ruthless in his criticism even of the author. And Newman wrote a personal letter in response to the review. He got good and mad when this reviewer, this um, critic, wrote about him in the paper. He wrote a letter back. And before he mailed the letter, he sent it to Charles Spurgeon. And these were Spurgeon's words to him. As he wrote this letter, the ink of your pen is just as venomous as had been your reviewers. You spared 
no effective or insult. And so before he mailed the letter, as he showed it to Spurgeon, Spurgeon said, you're absolutely right. The man deserves every bit of this. And so he said, is there anything else I need to put in there? He said, yes, you need to sign it. And I would sign it this way, author of Come to Jesus. That'll sting. My wife has done that to me on several occasions, playing the role of Holy Spirit as I'm on the phone with a customer serving agent, you know, and, and I'm talking to some customer service uh, that is lacking in customer service at all. And she says, okay, man of God, does he know that you're the pastor of Hardy Street Baptist? Uh, you didn't have to say that. <clears throat> some of you need to remember whose you are in the way that you act toward other people. Paul tore the letter up and began to pray for this reporter in this story. Some time ago, I wrote an email like that to somebody that offended me, and I had to do the same thing. Mentally, as I wrote my response and I sat on it for a few days, I realized when I cooled off that my words were true and their uh, challenge toward me was not, but the effect of my words was the exact same as theirs. It drove a wedge. And we can't do that. Sometimes courageous and candid words can be stupid and unnecessary. And maybe we need to slow ourselves down and live in peace. Well, I want to wrap this up. You know, our flesh wants to seek revenge and to even the score, but God says seek peace. The Son of God came to bring peace to us between people with whom God is well pleased. And one day Jesus even said this. We studied it last year. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. You can't pull that off on your own. If you are at peace with God, you can have peace within yourself, and you can have peace with others, but that's the only way. And so my encouragement to you today, don't try to find peace in the best presence. Don't try to find peace in the most perfect dinner or family gathering. You will find yourself flustered and frustrated and stressed out to no end. They will anger you, they will disappoint you, and you will disappoint others in your family. But in the midst of all of that, there has been given to us a son. A child was born, and that child would be the wonderful counselor. He would be the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He would be the almighty God who is our victory. And all of that, it said of him that his government would never end, that it would continue to increase. And the more that we decrease, the more he increases. The more we surrender, the more he shines. In our weakness, he is made perfect. And so if you you today have come into this place longing for some sense of peace. Run to Jesus, for he will give you peace with God. He will give you peace within yourself. And ultimately, he can help you to have peace with other people. Oh, as I think about what Christ has done, he is peace. He promised peace. He spoke peace over the winds and the waves. He brings peace in and of himself. And he also gives peace. I love that. Right before he ascended, my peace I give unto you. My joy may be given to you so that your joy may be complete. That's a picture of shalom, completeness, wholeness. Anybody looking for that? That last Christmas present just won't fill a God-sized hole in your heart. The only thing that will fill that vacuum is Jesus Christ. Oh, that today you would trust him. I'm going to pray as our instrumentalists come forward, and we're going to give you a time to respond. Today, I would ask of you, if you uh, 
uh, need to be saved, that you would step out from right where you are. If you've been looking for peace, it's a step away. If you'll take the first step, you're taking two toward God because the Bible says if you'll draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. So when we begin singing, step out from right where you are. We have encouragers that would love to sit down and just talk to you about a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They're, they meet right over here. You can come to me and I'll introduce you to them or you can walk straight over to this side in a moment when we begin to sing. Maybe the need of your life is to join with this church. We believe in participating membership, and I believe that 2022 is going to be an incredible year in the life of our church as we focus on relationships, as we focus on being a family of faith, as we focus on loving one another well and ministering to one another. We'll be talking about that all year long. But maybe you say, this is the kind of church I want to be a part of. Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching, caring, compassionate, evangelistic church. Come and join. Those encouragers can help you with that decision too. Either way, regardless of the need of your life, maybe you just need to pray. Maybe you just say, I have no peace. I'm, I'm a mess. I'm not sure what I need. I just know I'm in need. They would love to just take you um, by the hand and encourage you in the Word of God. So why don't you let God have His way? Let's stand together. I'll be praying, and then we'll begin to sing. Father, Use this time to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.